0: Welcome to the latest episode of Doing It! With Mike Sachs, my name is Mike Sachs, and you are doing it with me. We have a wonderful episode today. I interview one of my favorite writers, George Saunders. We talk politics, and I usually don't like talking about politics, but with George, you can talk about anything, and he'll make it interesting. We talk about fiction, and of course, we talk about his amazing new book, Lincoln in the Bardo. This is his first novel, and it's fantastic. Buy it now. And also an interview with comedy writer Miles Kahn, now working on Samantha Bee's great show, Full Frontal, and previously from The Daily Show. Before that, however, I want to address a rumor that's been going around these past two weeks. And the rumor is this, that in a previous life, this is before I became a writer, before I became a podcaster, this is when money was tight and my morals were looser, I worked as an actor in porn films. The rumor is true, but I never was a fireman or a cowboy or an astronaut in any of these movies. No, I play really odd characters with very unsexy professions, totally inappropriate for porno films. This was a big fetish in the late 1970s and 1980s and even into the early 1990s, unsexy professions in porn films. I'm not sure why, but this was my specialty. I'd like to now play for you a few excerpts from these movies. The first is from a movie called Sewage 77, sexy title. It came out, of course, in 1977 when I was 36. And I play Rhodes Reynolds, an environmental protection agency inspector going door-to-door, helping to investigate excess sewage runoff. Here is a clip. Hello, my name is Stark Reynolds, and I was currently in the neighborhood going door-to-door. Hello there. Thank you for stopping by.
2: I was doing nothing but cooking a pie. Do you like pie?
0: Yes. Yes, I do. What flavor?
2: Apple. I love the way the fruit sticks to the roof of your mouth when you eat it steaming hot.
0: Yum. That sounds delicious. May I have a slice?
2: Why, of course. Follow me, please. Now before I give you a steaming slice of my apple pie, may I ask what business you are involved in? Or is that too personal?
0: No, that is not too personal. I am an environmental inspector for the local government, specializing in sewage runoff in areas with highly dissolved oxygen rates. May I sit on your
2: lap as you show me what you do? Yes. What is this pump for?
0: This pump or, or that pump? This pump. This pump is for testing the fecal matter in underground storage facilities that have a tendency to pull beyond the acceptable runoff rate of 23 PCMs per cubic yard of arable soil. And this stick? This stick or this stick? The shorter stick. This stick I use to insert into holes. Deep holes? Sometimes, and other times not so deep. It really depends on how much fecal matter is evident in the runoff drains, according to County Regulation 354A. But sometimes other runoff is also evident, like raw sewage caused by the dead animals that clog storm drains. Would you like a slice of my pie? Metaphorical or apple? Apple. Yes, ma'am. My next clip is from a movie called STDs are FUN. I play a hospital patient named Johnny Ray who hooks up with a very sexy female doctor who specializes in sexually transmitted diseases that then affect the brain. This is from February 1981 and is from Sunshine Films. Nurse, I have been waiting for you. For how long? A long, long time. The bandages are starting to itch, and I am unable to scratch the skin beneath them by myself. Do you think you might be able to help me? I can try. Here, let me lift up this bed sheet. Ooh, that feels nice. The cool air on my sweaty skin feels fantastic. Are you a nurse? No, I am not. I am a doctor. A woman doctor? You are very pretty to be a doctor. Thank you. I have many specialties, but my main specialty is making men feel good. That sounds like a specialty I would like to be a part of. Can you make me feel good? I can try. Here, please lift up your pants. There, my pants are up. What do you see? I see many things, like this. Ooh. And this. Ooh, you are squeezing hard. I like that. What kind of doctor are you? I am a urologist
2: specializing in diseases of the bladder and urethra tract, such as renal
0: paracrimal disease. Is that all you do? No, I also have a subspecialty. I like that also. My subspecialty
2: involves sexually transmitted diseases and the ramifications they might cause on the neuromuscular system if they are not treated immediately.
0: Could you treat me immediately?
2: Yes, I would like to. You are dying of kidney failure. Also, you have a very bad case of venereal disease. Thank you.
0: The last clip I like to play is from 1987. I play a part-time worker at a failing small farm who performs horrible and odd jobs that no one else wants to perform. Here I am. I was 57 at this point, and I am playing a character called Louise Riches in a film called Makin Hay. Hello. I was just out riding this horse across the field bareback. Are you a cowboy? No, little lady, I am not. Are you a fireman? No ma'am. I am an illegal alien specializing in jobs that no one else wants, such as assisting farm vets in shaving down horses. Do you work without your shirt? Sometimes, and sometimes not. Yesterday I worked without my shirt when I helped trim the hair around a horse's testicles in order to tattoo an ID number for security purposes.
2: Like this here horse? All high and mighty and strong?
0: This horse that I ride like a bucking bronco? Yes, little lady. What else do you do? Oh, lift large objects onto the backs of other illegal aliens. Clean spittoon buckets. Hose down blood. Sometimes vomit. Other things, too. I bet you have a large penis. Yes, my penis is large. Large penises are nice. Thank you. And that's a plus,
2: because I bet your job requires a very large penis. Will you help me down from
0: this horse? Yes, milady. Please step upon the spittoon bucket. Okay, thank you. Have a nice life. Ooh, sexy. Coming up soon, my interview with the great George Saunders, as well as Miles Kahn of Full Frontal with Samantha B. But first, for you, the listener of Doing It with Mike Sachs, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com, that's one word, audibletrial.com slash it D O I N I T. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash doing it for your free audiobook. I just said free four times. That means it's really free. Set a calendar alert for 28 days from your sign up to get out without being charged. Totally worth it. Miles Kahn is one of those writers who has never worked on a bad show that I have seen anyway. I do know he has worked on a reality dating show. But alas, I have not seen that show. And yes, I just used the word alas. Quite frankly, I'm sure that show is pretty good too. I talked with Miles recently by phone about many conversations, including the role that comedy plays in this current political situation, as well as many other comedy related topics. One of the things I've been thinking about recently is just the role of writers in general and comedy writers in particular. What is our role in this type of world
3: you know we make the show for us first and foremost, and I, you know Sam says that a lot and and I, I agree with it like at the end of the day we are sort of doing it for us uh, once in a while when there's like when we make a difference like when we we raise like over six hundred thousand dollars for Planned Parenthood by selling nasty woman t shirts uh, that feels really good that's that's like that 's not nothing that 's something well, we did a, a segment on how rape kits were being shelved and destroyed in Georgia, and there was a bill that was going to be passed to make the situation worse. And uh, we didn't completely take credit for it, but our segment helped get a little news attention for it locally there in Georgia. And they, you know, they they passed the bill that said they would have to keep these rape kits. So you know, like there are some small victories that 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 happen, and that's really really nice. Um, And I think after seeing what happened, protests around the country because of the Muslim ban, because of the travel ban, um, protests work. Being loud works, and we have to keep this energy up, and we have to keep yelling and screaming and making points and writing comedy and writing jokes and writing commentary, whatever you do to, to, to make your point, comedy or otherwise. We just have to keep doing it. You can't You can't give up.
0: Was there a frustration on your part that you made your point over and over and over again, and then the vote comes and the vote goes, and there had to be some sort of feeling like, who are we appealing to, and will this ever, will this get better or worse?
3: I, there's definitely, there was a ton of soul-searching uh, uh, just in our office alone after it happened. We, I think we, we had thought that that people kind of saw the danger of, of what they could vote into office, and we, you know, as much as we, we certainly, I think, supported the Democratic candidate, uh, we also went to, went, to, went to length to explain how she's a flawed candidate, how she wasn't a great candidate, but she was the smartest person in the room, and the most stable person. So, I, you know, we, we, we made our point, we put ourselves out there, we, we, we made a choice, we, our POV was very obvious, the Daily Show stays much more neutral, at least they, they did when I was with them, for ten years, and I appreciated that. Uh, but then I appreciate this new angle. I appreciate that we we spoke our we spoke our feelings really clearly. Um, I, we're not going to stop doing that. Will we hope that more people will listen. I don't know. Not that many people knew we were on the air last year doing <laughs> this show. Maybe more people will get to hear us, and <laughs> we can change some minds. I don't know. Ross, what's it? Ross? Whatever his name from the New York Times wrote this article. This op-ed uh, that's saying that uh, liberal, it was like liberal Samantha B problem, and he squarely blamed uh, uh, Trump's uh, rise on us. So that you know, liberal, liberal media is, is they're doing this danger by separating us into bubbles, and they're they're not reflective of the other America. And it's just we're reacting to the news; we're not creating the news.
0: So I, right, I really re- the more extreme they get, the more extreme you have to be reacting to that extreme.
3: A little bit, I, I, we have to match their volume somehow. I don't know if extreme's the word I would use, but we, we have to match their volume and scream facts at them. And it's really, really hard because nobody believes, the, more, the louder you scream facts, there's confirmation bias. So we're always fighting that, like, there's nothing we could do about confirmation bias. It's a, it's a thing that exists in nature. And the more that you scream facts at someone who doesn't believe your facts, the less they believe your facts. So at the end of the day, yeah, we still struggle with, like, oh, who, who's our audience? Who are we talking to? Are we changing any minds? But at the end of the day, it's like we just have to keep doing what we're doing. It's what we know how to do. And if it's cathartic to you to listen, if it changes your mind, if it gives you new information, if it inspires you to go protest, if it inspires you to go out, what's heartening to me, uh, what keeps me going is that I, I, we, see on, we see on social media so much of like people wearing the nasty woman t-shirts and people saying hey that information really inspired me to go and look at stuff when we did pieces on Russia and we were ahead of the curve on Russia I'm really proud of uh, the reports we did there people I people had no idea what was going on so even people that were, would share our values or share our ideals or our politics we were at least giving them some new information at least giving them some new stuff so when they do go to Thanksgiving and they start arguing with their drunk uncle, they could hopefully have something good to say, to counter, to say, no, 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 uh, refugees are not illegal immigrants. These are two different things. I saw this on, on Samantha B and she explained it really, really well. And then he hears the word Samantha B and he goes, that liberal cunt, and then and then he doesn't listen anymore. But at least that person feels though well, so they've gained some knowledge in the argument.
0: Right. Well, I, you know, I... It's, it's an interesting thing. I mean, w- what you say about facts, you know, it, if someone, be it a drunk uncle or whomever, doesn't believe in facts, no matter what you say, is not going to affect them. And, and that's not our
3: audience, and we don't, we don't cater to those people. Like, we're, we're, we're actually really not, we're like, there's nothing we could do. It's not who we're speaking to
0: but here 's the thing too i mean for for comedy to work, you have to have a solid wall, right? You have to have something to bounce off of if if you If your reality isn't our reality isn't a sensible type reality where where facts don 't matter, how can you make a Republican or someone who watches one of the conspiracy shows, how can you make them laugh
3: i i don't think i i don't know if we will i what we 're trying to do at least this year. Uh, uh, we're trying to embrace people who then reach across the cultural aisle and we did it with Glenn Beck and we still don't love we don't love what Glenn Beck has done recently I think he's said and tweeted and and had some horrible ideas but he did sit down with us and he did have a a reasonable rational conversation and so we've been doing these we keep trying to find pieces where we can explore these unexpected allies and form alliances where you didn't need them Uh, Lindsey Graham and John McCain like Yes, we need to embrace these people who we disagree with on a lot of other things, but we should, do, Democrats need to form alliances with them. So we're, we're reaching out to people who, are, who, who might have something small in common. Jason Chaffetz uh, just uh, basically got the, turned down a bill that was going to sell off federal lands. He's a hunter. And what's great about that story is there's a hunter who is siding with conservationists over the preservation of federal park lands so like they found this unlikely alliance and so that's like that's the audience what we're reaching to is they everyone they're not we're not a country of extremists like on Twitter we are but not in real life there's common ground to be had
0: no I think you're absolutely right I think that was a good thing that Glenn Beck did appearing on the show a lot of people would not have come on to that show
3: no and hopefully we want more people who who are expected to come on our show We we, we encourage it we want it we want to listen to them we don't want to just make fun of them that's not That's not satisfying to
0: us. I do wonder, though. I grew up in D.C., and I do wonder if there's a sensibility difference when it comes to conservative and liberal humor IQ. You know, a lot of my friends grew up watching a certain show, be it Mr. Show, Simpsons, whatever. My conservative friends would be fans of Mark Russell, The Capitol Steps. Not
1: budge from within. He'll still be there some two
0: months after Reagan is sworn
1: in. Okay, let's talk about the campaign. Remember the campaign, you know, elect president? Uh, well, the Republicans are uh, starting off their convention in Detroit one week from... Uh, from today, you know, that many Republicans at one time in Detroit, I mean, you know, it's, it's like Afghan tourists in Moscow, it really doesn't, <laughs> I mean, that's a sad spectacle, and you think of it, all those Republicans in Detroit roaming through the back streets, looking for a country club. <laughs>
3: Really? Yeah. The, guys, the
0: guy who sings that guy. That the guy who's written five thousand oh, songs that all sound oh, alike. It's
3: so bad. Are there? So bad. It's just it's. I, I, I'm, such, I'm just. I'm. It's like objectively terrible. It's not funny.
0: Well, that, that's just it. <laughs> to them, it's funny. So I think there's two. You know, there's a way of looking at the world where you're, where you're liberal, and there's a way of looking at the world if you're conservative. But I think that that sort of bleeds over into humor
3: yeah may, I, perhaps i don't know i y i don't know why i don't know why there's there hasn't been a successful conservative daily show they've certainly tried it um i know that the the guys, some of the guys on fox have tried it they they do have their show like the red eye on fox is their sort of like casual funny panel show uh and i think liberal by the way liberals are really easy to make fun of like it's it's this is not fucking rocket science like they are and I'm including myself in this, very, very mockable. Mm-hmm. They, they, they trip over their own dicks time and time again. Uh, so it really should be really easy to make fun of liberals in a way that it's not just you and fucking noob tarts. Like, that's what I get on Twitter. I just get, like, you're fucking snowflake. And I'm like, well, that's not clever. or Like, fine, right. yes, I'm a snowflake. Yes, I have feelings. I'm sorry. But, like, that's not clever. Like, make fun of me in a way that's clever. I'll retweet it. Like, like, I'll appreciate it, but
0: well, exactly. I mean, it seems to be more anger-based than creative-based, from what I've seen. Maybe, maybe I'm not sure. Can you be conservative and be a top comedy writer?
3: I don't know any. I don't know any like staunchly conservative comedy writers. I know comedy writers who have lots of different points of view on things. You know what I mean? Like, I don't. But I don't know like someone who's like an ideological like conservative. And I think that's the difference. Is like a lot of our writers. Yes, there are some people who are super progressive. There are people who liked Bernie Sanders in our office a lot, and they fought with the people who liked Hillary Clinton in the office a lot. We weren't like a monolithic, we don't, we don't think monolithically, and I think that for the conservative movement, sometimes there's like this sense of like, of, 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 uh, this is what we believe. And I think as a liberal, you have to be open to different points of view, and that's a weakness and a strength. You know what I mean? Like the conservatives have this strength of just their, their lockstep in motion. And it, that's a very powerful thing. And liberals, because they're like, I want to understand your feelings. I want to understand what you're saying. <laughs> yes, we are snowflakes, and that's that's a benefit, and a, and it's 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 not a plus because it makes us it makes us weaker because we're very willing to listen to the other point of view. And maybe because of that, maybe the comedy has more of a chance to breathe because there's different ideas coming in from different places. I don't know. I'm speaking out loud, and I haven't really thought about
0: No, I think what. you're right. I, but when you say detriment, I don't think it's a detriment as far as uh, humor. I, it no. may be a detriment otherwise.
3: Oh no no yeah no I think it's an advantage as far as humor I think it's a, it it can be a detriment as far as like policy like the Republicans are really good at obstructionism and 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 being a lockstep and just kind of like folding behind the leader I mean that's why Trump is doing so well now and nobody on on nobody in the House is really speaking up right now. I mean, it's fascinating to watch them just just march lockstep behind a guy who six months ago they were saying was a crazy fascist. Now they're they're his minions.
0: Yeah, it's it's something to behold. I mean, these are very interesting times. Uh, I... It's
3: crazy to me because they're fucking cucks. <laughs> it's like the words exactly. that they use for liberals. Right. Yeah,
0: yeah. Right. I'm right. like, you guys
3: are a bunch of pussies. So you stood up to this guy?
0: Well, everything they criticize liberals about, they're now criticizing. Uh, uh, they, they're, mad, they're
3: mad today because Pelosi called uh, Bannon a white supremacist, which A he is. B they're mad that she called him a word. You fucking pussies, grow up! I thought political correctness was done, and now you're offended at the word white supremacist. Fuck you, you well, exactly. fucking cucks. Like, I, I, I just all I want to do is take. I've taken the word cuck back because I love it because it's so ridiculous. But like, I say it a million times a day because I I don't think they realized how funny that word was. <laughs> Like that's the problem. Like to me, it's a it's a hilarious term. It's so funny to me that that was their meanest insult. So like, you're a tuck.
0: Or what they're and, saying as far as the Supreme Court. I mean, it's exactly what the Democrats were complaining about. Uh, you know, eight, seven, eight months ago. It's just it just goes around and around. It doesn't seem to have any grip, any any traction. It, it's, it's... No,
3: no, we don't know where this is going to land yet, and that that's the scary part. And, uh, I've had, I've had family members say I'm overreacting because I, I work, I work in this field and I watch news and read all day and this is like, my life is in this and I'm like, I've been doing this for 12 years. I was at the Daily Show for a while. Uh, I've never felt anxious before in my job. I've never felt like, oh wait, we might go to war. Like there might be a nuclear war in my lifetime. Like that's, and like, I I hope I'm over, I hope I'm wrong. I hope I am overreacting but I can't help feel the way I feel
0: well that's one of the things that I feel for comedy writers and and others in in the business is that you can't take a break you know you're in the business this is your life and you have to keep up with it and I think that at times you almost mentally need a break from thinking about it all day I mean I've been dreaming about this stuff yeah. I'm not making yeah. myself out to be a hero. It's just I think other family members who are in other occupations have the uh, opportunity to maybe take a week away from it and just rest their mind and put themselves at ease a little bit.
3: Perhaps, yeah, I yeah, I don't know, I like I don't want to be wrapped up in thinking about this all the time, but then I, you know, like I woke up this morning and the first thing I, I do in the morning is a terrible habit is turn on my phone and check Twitter, and it's just like one like, oh, I missed this terrible news item. Oh, look at this, oh, we just insulted Australia. That's why did we do that? What's, whoa, well, okay, black history month, we fucked that up. Like, it's just like this all happened in the time I was asleep. So, But then I'm like, I flip my anxious quota for the day, and then I go to work, and I'm just pissed off all day.
0: But what's interesting, I sort of see it in the eyes of the really young, who have never really been a part or have been cognizant of of someone who's in power who doesn't quite grasp what's going on. It can be really scary, and I think a lot of people have grown complacent over Obama's years in the fact that he was just so on top of it, and we felt so safe. And now you see this unsteadiness, and it's, it's really worrying.
3: I remember we, we interviewed uh, Masha Gessin. She's a, she's a Russian journalist, um, and she had to leave the country uh, uh, just because she had too many threats against her life. And she talked about how, like, Putin's been in power for 16 years, and the children who grew up in that era, they don't know that it's... They don't know that it's not normal to live in an autocracy. Uh, wow. They don't understand that. So, like I was telling my friend, is a he's a public school teacher, and I'm like, "Do your kids? Do they? They're in high school. Do they understand? Do they have any sense of the gravity of any of this? Are they concerned?" It's like they nothing. They're just kids. They don't know. Mm-hmm. But they're gonna grow up in a world. And by the way, he's uh, Trump. Oh, Trump is gonna be elected again. That's just guaranteed. Um, I'll make I'll make that prediction here. Uh, so they're gonna they're gonna have eight years. Their their formative years gonna grow up inside. Um, some sort of proto autocracy. I don't even know what this is going to be yet, what they'll call it. And it's not going to be on to them. It's going to be life, and they won't know that. It's they may not know it's something to resist, and that's worrisome.
0: Do you think so? I am a comedy writer. <laughs> 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 this is fun, guys. <laughs> but I see. We're in, all gonna die. <laughs> I see in my daughter, who's who's seven, about to turn eight. There's like a visceral reaction, though, against Trump. Almost. Oh, really? Um, what, what is she doing? Well, what she told me was really interesting, that when they mention Trump's name in class, the kids boo. Now, I, I, Really? Yeah. That, how do they even know to boo? Is well, it their parents? I was going to say, it could very well be Park Slope parents. Oh, well, but okay. But I try to be really right. careful <laughs> with my daughter, uh, not say anything too negative, but when she sees Trump on the computer, she's, she can't look at it. It's too frightening for her. So I, then, sure. I
3: don't make some of It's just, but a free, he's a, a fighting looking person. I mean, he is, be, but I'm, yeah. I'm
0: hoping there's some. Sort do not
3: of... show her a picture of Steve Bannon. Oh my oh, goodness. She will, God, she will will run away screaming.
0: What a nightmare that guy is. But I do hope there there is some sort of innate sense that this, uh, and I see it though, uh, you know, in, on the streets and elsewhere. This is wrong, and and this cannot. God forbid, go on for another eight years. He's only been in power now for, what, 10 days, 14 days? Yeah. It seems like a lifetime, doesn't it? It seems like I've aged. It's
3: exhausting, and uh, I think people, they need to realize, and we're going to do some stuff on this on the show, they need to realize that this is a long, hard slog. Uh, Protesting doesn't, you don't just take a weekend and everything gets better. We're going to have to dig in, and we're going to have to resist really, really hard. Uh, or we're all screwed.
0: Well, now let's talk about your career. You've um, you're a very envi- enviable career. If someone is out there listening and, and they, they hear and know of your work, it's incredibly impressive. How did you first get interested in comedy? How old were you? And what was it that you saw or read that sort of uh, tipped your interest?
3: My brother had really good taste and introduced me uh, to Monty Python and Mel Brooks, and Woody Allen at an early age. Uh, so I was probably about 10, I started watching that, that brand of comedy, which was, some of it was pretty high. I didn't know anything about England, so I, I learned a really weird things when I was young from Monty Python and stuff like that. So I was a comedy nerd kind of early on. Um, I didn't know that I wanted to do comedy. I just liked funny things um, a lot, <laughs> Um, and I wanted to be a performer, and I, my mom told me I was a terrible actor, so I went to film school.
0: <laughs> uh, my mom to told you that. Usually it's the opposite of what
3: No. Yeah. No, she was right. I wasn't a good enough actor to be a performer, and uh, but I was in a video class in high school, and I liked making films and having fun doing stuff like that, and I, uh, I went to film school, and so I, I thought I was going to go be a filmmaker. And uh, I still want to make films. I still have made, I've made films. But uh, TV kind of just uh, crept in and became a really wonderful
0: place to work. Well, how did that happen, though? I mean, how did you make the leap from wanting to make movies to then writing for some of the best shows out there?
3: Uh, I I started out in production. I worked as a PA. I I graduated from film school uh, at Florida State, and I moved back up to New York, where I'm from, and I just started taking PA jobs and learned production, and I kind of walked through uh, through the production route, which... Is, is really uh, melts, nuts and bolts kind of stuff. Like, at first it was driving trucks, then it was, like, doing time cards, then it was, like, kind of planning schedules and crews and hiring people and vendors. It was really just, like, how to make something, uh, pure production work. And in the background, I was making short films. So I'd spend Max on my credit card and make a film or two and try to develop my reel on my own as a writer-director. I eventually got um, a very strange call uh, I think it was through mandy.com. I'd submitted a, a resume for some said they were making some sort of reality show. I didn't know anything about it. That turned into uh, an MTV show called Room Raiders. So I am the co-creator of a terrible dating show called Room Raiders on, on, on MTV that lasted a really long time. And I just, I bounced around as a director in, like, nonfiction and reality, still making my own stuff in the background. Um, and I was able to do a little bit of comedy in some of that stuff. And uh, I met a great guy named Jerry Kupfer. I did some shows with him. Jerry is a producer of 30 Rock. Um, but he recommended me to Rich Corson, who ran Jon Stewart's uh, production company at the time. And I just got the job. And it's a job that I knew about. I loved The Daily Show. Um, And I knew I could be a film producer on that show because that's like the writing directing position where you go out and you do the short films. I'm like, well, that's all I do now. So I always had my eye on that job. And I don't know if it was like Oprah's the secret, but somehow I got that job and did that for almost 10 years before I left
0: isn 't it funny the way life works in a sense where you don 't necessarily end up where you think you 're going to, but I would think that being uh, knowing about film could only have been an advantage where you 're coming at comedy from a, from a different angle that you can use a different uh, skill set different tools
3: it was a, It was a huge advantage coming in um, not that they didn 't have super talented people there already. I was very intimidated walking into the Daily Show. Uh, with people who had you know high levels of, of college and you know, I went to Florida State which is a good film school but that's not, it's not really an academic uh, uh, beacon uh, but I came in with yeah, I came in with some different skills that, that the team didn't necessarily have and strangely enough the reality show skills that I learned some of those skills I was able to sort of apply to pieces early on and I, I I'm sort of proud of the reputation I had of being a guy who spent a lot of money on their pieces. I, so they used to call them Miles Con Productions because I would, I would just throw everything at them and make them try to make them filmic and make them big. And I sort of had a, a reputation of doing that. And that was, yeah, that, it was an advantage. So what I didn't know in politics or, or when I didn't have the sharpest joke because someone was, uh, had a smarter, funnier version of it, at least I could, like, jump in as a director and try something that no one had done yet.
0: At least you have a dolly or crane shot.
3: Exactly. I did. I got to do Crane Shots on The Daily Show. So
0: what would uh, recommend recommendation be for those who are listening who want to either improve their their state of where they are or they're just about to start? What would you tell comedy writers, the do's? And also, what would you say they should not do?
3: Um Uh, what kind of what you talked about you you said isn't it funny how life turns out and that's because I never said no to an opportunity never think that you're selling out if you haven't sold anything yet you know like just try it like I did a reality show a fucking dating show and while it was a miserable experience, I learned so much on that miserable experience, and it launched me into a career in television that I'm really thankful for and would have never anticipated. Um, try everything, and it kind of it's like r- r- really shitty general advice, and nobody likes it, but it's just like try everything. If you like reading, like short fiction online, write short fiction. Find someone that publishes it. I remember uh, always I always loved McSweeney's, and that was always a goal when I was younger. Like gotta get published and I did I just kept doing it and kept sending them stuff so they would take something um, uh, try everything go if you want to make, make a short film and you don't know how to do it go, go take a class or go meet some improvisers at UCB and make some friends and just you can make so much of your own shit now I mean, when I came out of film school, I spent money on, like, film film, on, like, 35-millimeter films to make. It It was really expensive to make it look professional. You can make your shit look professional now if you want. It, there's, no, there's no excuse not to just go out and shoot stuff.
0: I, I think that's amazing advice. I mean, there's, you can do more now than you can in the history of media, uh, both yeah. writing and producing and everything else. And it really comes down to trying everything, meeting different people, experiencing life, and just doing it moving forward.
3: Yeah, I know it's like it's such like a it's like a whitewash of information. I'm like, oh, just go do it. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, I see a lot of stuff. I get a lot of resumes, and the cream rises to the top. If you're like, oh, everybody's making their own stuff on Vimeo or YouTube, and everyone's but yeah, but there's not a lot of good stuff. Just make good stuff. <laughs> Rise above. <laughs> make a good looking thing. Write something that's really good. Work really hard on it, and workshop it. Show it to your friends. Like, get feedback. Don't be a precious artist. That was the other big lesson I learned from The Daily Show. That was a huge lesson coming from film school, coming from a place of, like, the the auteur, the writer-director. I shook those, those cobwebs really, really quickly at the daily show it, 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 the best joke in the room wins is don't be precious about your material take notes listen to what other people think
0: right that was a mistake that I made when I first graduated I was too insular I didn't have others around me and I think by doing that it's not a healthy place to be uh, just from a uh, mental standpoint but also as far as a creative standpoint I think it's good to surround yourself with like minded people and to be open about ideas and jokes rather than Yeah, my
3: my thesis film in film school, uh, I, I really I had a good career in film, in film school up until my thesis, and I got a real big head about myself, and I didn't listen to anybody when they said, hey, maybe you should try this. No, no, this is the way it's got to be. I'm an auteur and I ended up with a film that was really confusing it looked good but it was really confusing it didn't make any sense and so I, I corrected that uh, when I came out and I told a much simpler story and I got feedback and I worked with people and I wanted to hear what people had to say and like it, it's, it was just so huge and it was a huge lesson and John Stewart I, I give him so much credit for building an environment that was just if the intern pitches something that's funny you put that fucking joke in it doesn't matter who said it there's no ego the funniest joke wins
0: That's an amazing thing. You don't see that out there too often.
3: No, but I I suspect that John Oliver's uh, uh, office is just like that. I know our office is just like that. And I'm sure the current day iteration of the Dallas show, I know people there. It's still like that there. So I think that ethos has, uh, you know, it, it continues to catch on. And I think that's why that's why they're quality shows. That's why I think that we're doing well. and That's why everyone in those shows are, are still doing well.
0: That's right. You can see how it works and how the humor only benefits from it and how the show only benefits from it. Yeah. I mean, if the host didn't, I've
3: seen shows fail where the host thinks that they know better, you know, and if they, you know, they were not willing to listen. Those shows fail.
0: Well, it sounds like our nation right now.
3: <laughs> that was a very nice segue Thanks. you're a writer
0: yes I am sir well listen <laughs> I'm a big fan of your work every TV show you've worked on except maybe that reality show which I didn't know that you worked on that has been uh, my favorite you, you do great work and please keep it up and thank you for uh, talking to me I appreciate it. sure Mike alright George Saunders fiction writer extraordinaire was kind enough to talk with me While he was in the midst of an extremely busy reading tour, he must have hit at least 25 cities, I caught him in a hotel lobby waiting for a room down in Birmingham, Alabama. Not a joke. George has a terrific new book out, his first novel. It's called Lincoln and the Bardo. You have to get it. It's fantastic. George and I talked by phone. Creatively, as a writer, it seems that you've really hit cruising altitude above the turbulence. It seems like it's a great place to be as a writer.
1: Yeah, it felt really new and uh, kind of risky, you know. I guess for about a third of the time, I was sort of thinking, well, this might just be a big screw-up. That's okay. I'll just give it a try. And then it kind of picked up speed, you know, and I felt like I was able to, um, I guess, I mean, I don't know how to say it. I would say I could get more positive balances, in it. I don't know if that's really true or not, but it felt like I could sort of uh, be a little straighter when I needed to. You know, the pose doesn't have to call attention itself quite as much. And it turns out that had some kind of compensatory you know values when uh if you could do that you would get into some other areas you might not be able to get into otherwise
0: well you said that when you when you thought about writing a follow-up to the 10th of december you you got a sad feeling and i was wondering why that was the case
1: well i i guess it's because uh it seems like my artistic energy kind of works in pulses like i'll get on a certain thing and i I wouldn't even be able to say what that thing was but it's almost like you you get a certain energy going and then at some point, it feels like it's exhausted. Like with uh, that book when I wrote 10th The Title Story, which was the last one, I kind of felt just like something had been concluded. I, I couldn't really, I mean, it's an artistic approach that you're running through, I think. But I, even then, I wouldn't able to exactly what that was. But I got to the end of that, and I thought, well, do I need one more story in this book? And I went, no. And then I thought, go well, on, I'll start another book in the same flavor?" And I went, no, no, no. I, I think just because, you know, you're. um it, it, it seems sometimes like you're you're kind of exploring around in some artistic space. Uh, you, something happens. You, you know, you, you kind of almost like get the scent of something that you're interested in. You write, you write, you write, you write. At some point, it's, uh, I guess, when, isn't it in Tiga days that you jumped a shark? Mm-hmm. Right, where you where you kind of know what you're doing a little too well, mm-hmm. and then suddenly the surprise part of it is gone. And at that point, I think it's that usually means you pretty close to the end of the book, where you you know, your current method has as revealed itself to you and you're almost a little too aware of what it is in some some part of your body. So with all the short stories that happen, like I get about a story away from the end and go, Yeah, after that one I'm gonna take a break and, you know, wait for the next direction to, to take hold. So uh I I finished that one and uh kinda of turned my mind to even starting another story and I just didn't really feel it but I felt like that. somehow I'd really repeat myself and um that it played out that, you know, that, that so, and luckily, this religion was around and it was so different that it was uh, kind of a no-brainer to, to give this shot.
0: You know, when I read that, I don't know why, but I thought of when Steve Martin quit stand-up at the height of his power, selling <laughs> out stadiums, everyone said, what are you doing? And He said, you know, it's, I'm just not feeling it anymore. It's, it's yeah. not comfortable anymore, creatively. It's a real creative,
1: gutsy thing to do. I think that there's some. I mean, I guess it depends on the person. But for me, there's. Uh, I really like that feeling of, of not exactly knowing what I'm trying to do or, or what tone I'm trying to hit. Uh, and again, I, it has something to do with the way my mind works. And if I'm if I know too well what I'm doing, I'm kind of disappointing. Uh, you know, if I'm able, if the, uh, the material lets me over control it, I tend to squeeze the life right out of it. Whereas if I'm a little bit baffled, or if somehow like with the Sneaking Book uh the material is hard enough for me that i kind of have to pick up a different form that i don't know uh, how to use that's kind of where i get the most energy going if, it's almost like if somebody was really at his best and you just dropped him in some strange city and made him try to find his hotel you know like that, if, if that brought out certain qualities in him that were likable uh then, then he would do well to just sort of be dropped in different cities now and then and not not necessarily have a plan so lot, I think so much of this art stuff is, and I know we've talked about this before, but is um, kind of uh, for me anyway. It's about finding a way to accommodate your intuitions, or to sort of you know privilege your intuitions as opposed to your uh, you know intellectual constructs. So a lot of the for me the project selection notice has to do with uh, almost trying to find something that will that will put me a little off step, just so I can't. Uh, predict myself too easily, something like that. But
0: it wasn't a new idea, right? You said that you had this idea for two decades.
1: Yeah, yeah and that's, and I avoided it because it seemed to me, uh, you know, as somebody who's sort of, I, my, I self-identified as a comic writer since the first book, and, and before that I I, was, I self-identified maybe as like a anyway less modernist, and that, that didn't work for me. So when I made the jump to consider myself a comic writer, it was kind of like, you know, a big commitment, and I felt like, okay, that's it, forever. Uh, So then, when I first heard that Lincoln idea, I was like, that's not a comic idea. That's not, that isn't funny.
4: The gentleman seemed lost. Several times he stopped, looked about, retraced his steps, reversed course. He was softly sobbing. He was not sobbing. My friend remembers incorrectly. He was winded. He did not sob. He was
2: softly sobbing, his sadness aggravated by his mounting frustration at being lost.
1: He moved stiffly, all elbows and knees.
2: Bursting out of the doorway, the lad took off running toward the man, a look of joy on his face.
1: And, and I think what happened over the years, I, I, I kind of deconstructed what comics meant. You know, in the early days it just meant that maybe something like the reader and I would share the idea that this world was purposely askew and a little bit, I don't know, maybe a little bit lower than ours. I and mean, we were going to do that for deep reasons. Uh, and then over the years, somehow that just shifted a little bit. And, and, and I think in, in many ways, I kind of I've added some, some, some moves to my repertoire or something. So when I got to this book, suddenly I, I kind of figured out a way to do it that was comic uh, in a different way.
2: I will be brief. Jane Ellis. I doubt it. Mrs. Abigail Blass.
1: Mrs. Blass, please, everyone will get a... Once
2: at the Christmas tide, Papa took us to a wonderful village festival.
4: Ugh. Please don't crowd. Simply stay in line. All will be accommodated.
2: She yips and yips and must always be first in all
4: things. How? Please tell me, does she merit such... You could learn a thing or two from her, Mrs. Blass. Look at her posture. How calm she remains.
2: How clean her clothing is kept. Gentlemen, if I may.
1: So in other words, I, I've been reading from this book. Uh, you know, when I try to read individual sections, it's hard because there aren't the kind of the jokes, you know. You can read whole sections and not get any laughs. And, the, and the, the purpose is purely descriptive. And it makes me really nervous, actually, as somebody who's always tried to read my funniest stuff out loud. But uh, somehow, you know, letting myself go into that mode, and I think it's letting me find different kind of comic writing. Uh, maybe, I, again, I'm not I'm not too articulate about it, but there's something about maybe uh, the, the individual sections not being comic, but the juxtapositions of high and low being comic or something like that. So. In some ways, it was just a way of trying to find a, a different way to use the same little energy puddle. What's interesting
0: is such an old idea, and it took you a while to get it. But now that it's out, it seems so of its time, you know, with what's going on out there. It's just such a perfect fit.
1: It was really lucky because we originally we could have put it out in the fall, but we we very cleverly delayed it because of the election. Little did we know.
4: On our wedding day, I was 46, she was 18. Now I know what you are thinking. Older man, not thin, somewhat bald, lame in one leg, teeth of wood, exercises the marital prerogative, thereby mortifying the poor young. But that is false. That is exactly what I refused to do, you see.
1: Yeah, and I felt like it was really, um for me, you know, once, when- one, and I was like, "Oh my God, you know what, what can I write about this I, kind of thought, I did it I, I did it, and luckily I had four years of wealth of you know peace and calm to do it you know
0: you know in reading the book, it r- reminded me of that Grail Marcus quote about old weird America, and how how weird it still is. This is such a young country, you know that magical things could happen, but it didn't take place that long ago, you
1: know. Yeah, I have a feeling that all of our, our tidy history uh, book ideas about you know American virtues or American simplicity are all just uh, you know sort of a, a result of some radical editing. Because you go back and read the Civil War correspondences and uh, the sort of deep history at that time, and it was crazy. I mean, every bit as crazy as now, and vice versa. You know, it's just sort of Now, in that there were two sides that had somehow gotten so entrenched that uh, they were working from completely different uh, thought systems. So, you know, when, when uh, uh, you, you had a southern senator caning a uh, northern senator almost to death in the Senate, you know, and, and uh, so, so, yeah, I think, I think for me that's kind of what the working model is that every time has been equally insane. And some, some have been lucky in that they were quietly insane, like maybe the last 10 years of our country. Uh but you know, if you ever spend any time contemplating human consciousness you know, even even in the form of one fictional character, uh you know you you can see that civilization and civility and all that those are like real conditional they're, they're really uh. You know, so, so easy to, to lose.
0: When the fever broke in the early 19th century, it was, it broke through war. But the question that I have, and I'm sure a lot of people have, is how
1: is this fever going to break now and will it break? Yeah. It's, I don't, you know, the truth, this is something I, somebody like a control freak like me has trouble saying that I just don't know. I, I don't think anybody knows. I and mean, we're all scrambling to, you know, federal auto plunder because the anxiety of not knowing is so terrible. But I don't, I, I, the only thing I've heard that makes sense to me is since we're not really geographically divided, outright war becomes kind of difficult. And I, and I actually think, you know, uh, maybe I'll take a more hopeful stance. I, I, I've noticed this, when I went to the Trump rallies, or you know, when we go to a ball game or mall or whatever, Americans know how to behave. So, you know, we know how to behave with each other. Uh, very uh, wonderful, sophisticated public civility that we have going, yeah. you know? Uh, on an airplane. People constantly doing little things to help each other and to cheer each other up. and So I think that's wonderful, and I don't think uh, we're that stupid to let this stuff get into that domain. I, now, I didn't also think that Trump would win, so I don't know. But I, but I feel like we've got um, a little bit of a head start on these dark forces because we've had so many years uh, of learning to, to live publicly with one another. And the optimistic side of me thinks that you know, if you could, like, make up a pro American, he, he thinks well of himself in that he's funny and he's kind and he's down to earth and he's realistic and he's good in a pinch and he's hard worker. And I think most of us ever, from, from either side, have that internalization. And when I was at those Trump rallies, I could get to that so, so quickly with, with the guys that I met. Just I would say, I'm a liberal, I'm left of Gandhi, they'd laugh and we'd, you know, mess around. And, and there was never any any even in the slightest thought that one of them would violate that that contract so i am taking some hope in that you know and i'm also feeling this shift i mean i think the uh if you think about the number of people who voted for trump while holding their nose or didn't vote for the third party it doesn't take very many of those people to suddenly really turn the tides on this thing and, and uh yeah,
0: yeah, I see that. I see that too. with, with family of, my, of mine that voted for Trump. These are good people, hard work, and They do want what's right. They're low stars in the right location. So I do think you're right. And when when you go into areas, public areas, like you said, Americans are very kind. Um, these are they are they're not mean spirited people. They're they're very accepting.
1: Yeah, and you know, I mean, it's hard to generalize. I only went to five hours, but I was I'm interested that. the uh, the kind of progressive liberal imagining of the Trump rally, where those people are saying, was it scary? And it was the farthest thing from scary. And there's a kind of a, I mean, again, hard to generalize because there were definitely violent assholes at those rallies, and we've seen them. But most of the people, I mean, all of the people i talked to were almost, I don't know how to, I don't want to like, you know, glorify it, but they were very, uh, and I don't want to insult them, but I would say, if there's a non-pejorative form of docile. They were there to see a rally. They didn't want any trouble. They had some obje- some problems and some objections. Uh, they kind of felt that he was addressing them. But when I would challenge them, they were perfectly willing to be challenged, and we had a really good time. So I think um, there's a lot of misunderstanding on both sides. The only thing that I can coming back to is uh, we, we misunderstand the, the Trump supporters. And I think that there's a long history, probably, of uh, you know, people from uh, the—I co- don't know—you know—the whole, the whole, 12, the elites, people from the coast, suddenly looking down on people who are not like them. I think that's true. They—they they also aren't crazy about us, you know. And there's a lot of, of condescension in that direction and misunderstanding. But the—the the one thing about this whole political moment is that the—the the people who are going to get hurt the most by someone's misunderstanding are immigrants and uh, migrants. And Muslims and women, uh, and they're going to be hurt by Trump. So, so they you know to me, if you look at who's really at risk, it's those people. So I, I, I'm totally down with uh, you know being loving and empathetic to Trump supporters, but the Trump administration itself, I think, is is um, you know mean spirited organization. It really is I don't understand why I don't know what I don't really understand the, uh, the ethos. But when you look at what they're doing, almost all of it seems to be coming out of this weird fear that, that doesn't jive with what we just talked about, you know, that kind of peacefulness of the American commons. Uh, it doesn't really make sense for them to be so fearful, you know. And, and I think it's, I think the, the one thing I found with those rallies was uh, most of the people I know who are liberals and have a lot of innate sympathy for the groups I just named. It's because they know people in those groups. That, Whereas, at uh, the rallies, there was a lot of abstraction and kind of projection about people that I don't think the Trump supporters had a lot of interaction with. So a so flag goes up uh, on that one for me.
0: I think so, too. But at the same time, what was different in this case was not the fact that someone was yelling, USA," but the fact that no one on the Trump committee said a thing about it. That, to me, was the difference in that there was, it seemed darker and it seemed like th- this, is, this is not what it's been in the past.
1: No, that's right. There, there are some real old, ugly ideas uh, bouncing around at the White House. You know, a friend of mine uses great said that they're, they're constantly dog whistling, mm-hmm. So they know who can hear these signals uh, and these kind of rallying cries to go ahead and step out of the shadows and be a racist and be an anti-semite. Uh, that's really you know, that's really sinister stuff.
0: Yeah. I feel, too, that as a writer and one who's into comedy and humor, I feel like we're dog whistling, too, but sometimes into the void. You know, I feel like it's almost as if we're flicking pebbles at Trump Tower. Is it enough?
1: You know, having been with us Trump supporters, the, the really kind of stunning thing was the extent to which the media universe versus don't intersect. So, you know, if somebody goes on a comedy uh, night, night, you know, late night show and, and fix a jab at Trump, I don't really think there's I any mean, Trump support here. I mean, and if it is human, at the it, it's it's just that they're all the stupid liberals, you know? So I'm not, I, I, in my own mind, I, I tried to write a couple of satires about Trump. And I just, you know, in, in the spirit of some of the stuff I did um, for the New Yorker in past years, so against Poland and stuff, and it somehow, I couldn't finish him, but he just seemed like, yeah, 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 you know, um, uh, so I think preaching with the choir is valuable, but I'm thinking now that preaching with the choir we need to do maybe has to be of a different flavor than um, stuff that's you know, hyperbolic and shrill and kind of underscores what we already know. Because like you said, that, that isn't really getting it done. Not only is the magnitude not big enough, but I think the audiences are almost in two separate rooms at this point. But did, you, did you find that?
0: Absolutely. I I feel that with everything that Trevor Noah is saying, everything that all the late-night shows are saying, that's fine, but it's not making a dent. And I'll give you a specific example. Within a few of my relatives who voted for Trump, it's white noise to them. And not only do they not want to listen to it and is is it not effective, but it just makes them more upset and makes them
1: lean more towards Trump. Right. It, it kind of it kind of reinforces some easier stereotypes about liberal, liberal shrillness and so on. I think there is a, I mean, I'm not also uh, against preaching to the choir. I think the choir needs to be preached to because, it, but I think the function of that is maybe to, um, how do I say it, like to, to purify the beliefs that we're, that were, were preaching so that they work. In other words, if the, if the preaching of the choir had to do with, okay, let's let's reconsider the liberal project, uh, what do we actually believe in? How could And I would say even, how can we pitch this to be the most persuasive for those people who might be persuadable? And I think Trump's going to help us with that. I think he's going to, you know, get stranger and stranger. But uh, I'm, I'm really sensitive, having been on that trip and also having lots of people I love who voted for Trump, that there is a persuasive... There is persuasion to be done. It's not the case that they can't be persuaded. Um, now how to do it? Uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I think actually, but I really think it's easier to have to do what we do with a lot of energy. So if you are somebody who's shrill and hyperbolic, you should be really energetic about it. And if you're somebody who feels like persuading, you should be really energetic about that. But personally, I'm, uh, that this pump kind of messed me up a bit because you see the face of the opposition and, and you hear their on stories and suddenly, you know, there, there's some limit to how much you want to group them and mock them, you know, uh, especially when it feels to you that those barbs are off target, given what, what they said. And and the really scary thing is that you know, when I talked to people, I had these long conversations where we would reason back and forth and cite facts, and you know, you, I could get some movement out of them. It wasn't like there was, there was absolute resistance. Um, but you could really feel the force of something, that they're doing in mythologies, and when I stepped away from it, I think it's, uh, my mind keeps coming back to Fox. I think Fox is a huge problem. I think that in years hence, people will say that was a blight on our country. Uh, and, that, and now it's being supplemented by the stuff even further right. But that, you know, I get to these places where I'm like, how come we can't, how, why do you think that? You know, why do you not agree on this? Why are you so, you know, unbelievably fearful of immigrants? And, you know, all, all roads lead to FOSS to and, and writing media. So that's a, kind of an interesting thing. But that's, in some ways, I don't know if it's solvable, but it's certainly it can certainly be deconstructed you know, uh, oh. I, I don't know, like media, media literature and so on, literacy and so
0: on. Absolutely, and I think it's a more effective Father Coughlin type of experience, Where, and I can understand it. When I, would, when I just graduated college, I would drive around endlessly without a job, listening to G. Gordon Liddy on radio, and you start believing, and you start digesting what they are saying, and before you know it, you're out buying books, uh, conspiracy theory books about Watergate, about this, about that. Yeah. I can sort of understand it, but I think at a certain point it has it it has to break, or otherwise we're just heading towards God knows where.
1: Yeah, and, and, and you know, actually, I mean, I, I tend to be an auto optimist, but when I think about this, not so optimistic, because Fox has now become quite uh mainstream for many mainstream people, and they've gotten very good at they've perfected the rhetoric, so it's like a sweater without any. Strings sticking out, you know they're they're pretty good at their stick. Um, So I don't know. I mean I, I don't really know the answer. The, the one thing when I'm doing these rallies, I thought, and I'll never I don't have the you know the organization to do this, but I got this sense from uh, doing a lot of talking, is you had a kind of a format where you had five liberals, you know, self declared liberals, and five self declared conservatives from the same community uh, come together in a, in a kind of a casual setting. And then there'd be a moderator, and and the moderator is the tricky part, but it occurred to me, because we did it a couple times in the field, if you can say, all right, look, we're not, one rule we're going to have is nobody's making any new laws. We're not allowed to, there's no legislation pending here. The second thing is, and this is the hard part, we're going to call bullshit whenever somebody invokes a talking point from any uh, partisan for-profit news agency. That takes a really good moderator to do that. Uh, And then we're going to start locally. We're going to say, okay, in this city where we are, uh, what are the actual problems? If you were the mayor, what would you try to fix? So, in other words, to try to steer away from the abstract, uh, Fox-directed paranoia and stick to the the things you've actually experienced yourself, you know? Uh, I think actually you could. And and then the the last one would be, what do you want this city to look like in 10 years? And again, Keeping away from talking points, you know. Uh, you know, you can't say I don't want it to be, uh, uh, you know, that the liberals have taken our guns. You have, have to really stick to your, your actual city. And I, and I, I mean, we, we could get them that spirit. I felt such a real hunger for those kind of discussions, uh, because I think we've all suffered from this polarization, you know. And I I, I feel so much more liberal-identified than I was when I was in my 20s. And I was a a liberal in my late 20s, but I didn't think of myself primarily as a liberal. And I didn't pick fights with people because they weren't, you know. And not that that jives with your experience.
0: It does, but you see what the problem with what I think you just mentioned. I think it's a great idea, but then Fox would cover it. They would watch it on Fox, and then it then it becomes
1: the alternate spin. Yeah, no, I mean they might, but I think you know. The thing, I don't think
4: people.
1: Uh, maybe uh, yeah, I'll, I'll go back to being too optimistic, but I don't think most people like being part of a flock. You know, the Fox flock. And I and I when I would talk to people, you see them uh, even very conservative people kind of kind of break links a little bit with these um, definitions because I think they feel as I do that there's something fishy about these big media tribe makers. You know, They all the money it's, I mean and and yet the truth is and I, I am much more partial to left-wing media and I don't I don't want to do a false equivalency because they're much more responsible in fact based. But still you go know, up the lifestyles of the <laughs> the talking heads at the different you know, conservative and liberal uh, networks are very similar, compared to the people that I was meeting with Trump for you know, a life of that kind of privilege is, is unimaginable for none of them.
0: Right. But the problem with that is, okay, so they think Fox is too um, corporate, perhaps, so then they, they shoot off and they, they go to an Alex Jones. But my question about Alex Jones and even Fox, do you believe that they believe this, or do they know that there's glo- global warming, do they know that there's a problem? And then it just
1: costs to money. I think they believe it, but the believing is helped along by money. I mean, you know, I mean if, if your whole life is, is you know coming out of a certain uh, view that seems correct to you or somewhat correct to you, and you're constantly going on having people praising you for speaking the truth and so on, I think it's sort of a, a self self system. You know, I, I, uh, yeah, I, I think it's both. You know, I think I, I don't think they could be so as to sure, but fully not believe it, that, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure about that
0: one. You know, last time we spoke, you, you told me something I never forgot about how, you, you talked about how your stories don't take place in the future so much as in a sort of parallel America where everything is 20% more than it is now. So this yeah. was four years ago. I'm just wondering what 20% more of now could possibly be.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, honestly, I don't know what I'll do. I don't know what to do. I never really know how to how to start. And I I know one thing: I never, never, never uh, think of myself as addressing what's happening now. It's almost like a conscious decision to turn away from whatever might be current, because that that activates a kind of a shallow part of my mind. So if I kind of go, well, let me just almost purposely turn away from that, whatever uh, whatever needs to get in the story will get in there. I mean, in other words, if I at a loss, I would write a story about a bunch of items on the table, you know, a fork, a knife, and a salt and pepper shaker who can talk. I could do something with that. And whatever was on my mind or whatever was within, within the atmosphere, I guarantee you would find its way into that story if I rewrote it enough. You know, in so, you know, some ways, it's a great little uh, dodge. I don't have to really worry about it. What I have to do is absorb it and kind of, you know, be, be as much a part of it as I can be and then just trust that it'll somehow percolate into whatever is coming.
0: Hmm. Right, but no matter when a story takes place, now or in the future, you also said that irony is just honesty with the volume cranked up. But everything is cranked up so high now, so what is honesty anymore? I and mean, how how hard do you have to crank it up?
1: You know, man, I, I actually am coming around to the stuff that maybe we, we want to be a little careful about getting too, uh, you know, not, not too concerned, but I mean, I, I have a friend who, uh, you know, I called her to Kibet, 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 about this situation and she's older, and she said, yeah, it's a terrible time, but I also remember uh, that the eight-month period during which Dr. King and uh, RFK were shot, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think in some ways the other thing that I, I, I would counsel fellow professors is that we want to not um, overdo it in, in terms of... Uh, underestimating our ability to rise to the occasion. So, you know, the world has always been thus, and people have always been confused. I think we're coming out of a blessed period where, probably for people of our generation, we never really had uh, our beliefs tested very much, actually. You know, I mean, when I think about myself at eight, 20, 30, 35, there was never any particular urgency to my belief system. You know, I had it, and I was developing it through real life, but never once did uh, you know, did this, this, the idea that kindness is a virtue tested. So mm-hmm. uh, Never once uh, did I have to really think about how to um, accommodate somebody I cared about who had what seemed to me a repellent belief system. But it's not the first time in history that people have had to do that. So I think, you know, in a sense, we're kind of frail. We On both sides, we, we've um, we've had our belief systems and we've espoused them and all, and we felt good about having them. And now suddenly, shit is cracked, you know? and, and so I, I think my, my tendency is to say, "Oh, okay," so you know, uh, love thy neighbor, still true. You know, love thy enemies, still true. Uh, God, you know, how, do, how does that done in, in the in the present moment? And uh, but I, you know, in some ways, it's kind of exciting because it, it's uh, you know, what it twin's to an untested virtue is not a virtue. So you know, the testing ground, you know. Yeah, I feel
0: the same way. I, I, I don't. I think we, we grew complacent, or I grew complacent over the years. Where we had, it, we had it good. And what, I think what's going to be interesting, too, is seeing how comedy and literature changes with those coming up now with Trump. You know, a lot of yeah. the current generation came up with Obama, but I'm really fascinated to see, especially from women and minorities, how in five to ten years their sensibility
1: was formed by the Trump era. Yeah, yeah. You know, the one thing that I, I kind of fall back on, comic fiction has always been about human foibles, you know. It, 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 it's actually the highest level of thought, well, I think, has never been directly about politics. So you think about Gogol or Twain uh, or Confederacy of Dunces, you know, these things have always been about human beings. They're essential tendencies. So maybe, I'm telling myself, right now, we're just getting uh, exposure to uh, a kind of human tendencies in extremis, but that's great. You know, now we know more about human beings than we did during that spoil period. So we should be able to to, to use it. Now I, don't, I can't imagine it right now, but I think, um, you know, it's kind of like if you lived in a, a country where no one got very sick and you wrote novels about that country and then suddenly there was a cholera outbreak. outbreak. Well, you know, same tools. And uh, yeah, so I think, I mean, again, I'm not making this as a policy statement, but as sort of a self comforting <laughs> mantra that, uh, no, but it is interesting because in cultures that are in crisis, like the, the Russia of the Russian Revolution, uh, the literature definitely went nuts for a while. And, and, uh, and then of course they basically eliminated it. <laughs> but yeah, it would be, be interesting.
0: But here's a question too. When, during the craziness of the early 70s, when you had a Michael O'Donoghue with National Lampoon doing Slash and Burn type of comedy, such as the Vietnamese Baby Book, I don't think that would be accepted by the left now. I think, I don't think it would be as effective anger-wise as it was then, and I'm wondering what sort of slash-and-burn would work
1: now. Yeah, I don't know. Good question. Yeah. Uh, the only way we could solve it individually is just by getting in there and wrestling with it, you know, by wit. Yeah. Uh, and so to me, it's like if you fully expose yourself to what's happening, <clears throat> don't deny it, don't try to appreciate it, uh, let it come into your body basically, and then you go into your writing room and use good, whatever good writing habits have served you in the past, I have a faith that that'll be okay, you know. Because in a certain way, you know, what does art do? It, it provides a kind of a uh, very sometimes obnoxious comfort to people at a particular moment. Uh, and really, high art provides that comfort to people at every moment, theoretically. So, so as long as there's someone who needs to be comforted, there to do it. So so I think, and I can guarantee you we're all going to need a lot of comfort. Uh, so I think, I think it'll be okay. I do find, you know, when I'm, I'm doing a lot of talks right now, and people are so hungry to talk about this stuff, you know. And it, it seems to me from what I can tell, the tone that's making even more satisfied, there's a softer, not, softer's not quite the right word, it's a more, uh, hmm, it's not, it's not, Subtastically slashing Trump a bit—that they've seen that. That's not, you know, they can get that anywhere. They can do it themselves. But it's some kind of acknowledgement of the actual complication of the moment, which includes everything. It includes the fact that many of us love people on the other side. It includes that we can actually see some virtue in the lower middle classes, rebellion. All the it includes how hurtful the Trump movement is. But I think that the movement I'm feeling in people's hearts is that they want to actually not turn away from any of that stuff and some come to some kind of accommodation with the whole the whole thing uh and when you get on something that even hints at that you can feel the room light up with energy and if, you know in one of my moments of I descend to cheap comedy there's a kind of like yeah, yeah, yeah. you know it was interesting
0: well i think that's one of the reasons why you're so popular is that you're an incredibly decent person and that decency comes through in your writing and i think you're absolutely right i think being ironic and being sarcastic is, is will only get you so far. And it really does come yeah. down to a goodness that people want and need uh,
1: that'll take you into the future. Yeah. Although, you know, it might also be... I, I, I believe that, actually. Uh, well, I believe that from my function. I also think that, you know, guys like Colbert and Seth Myers and uh, Covinoa are doing something very important, too, which is calling bullshit at the highest level. I mean, so there's nothing that says, again, that a person can't function in his or her own mode. And I think that's the one thing I'm taking away from talking to people is that everybody's got a different, you know, it's like a superhero team. You know, if you can if you can make yourself invisible in a moment of crisis, you shouldn't be trying to start yourself on fire. You know, you should make yourself invisible. So that that's another thing to say. There actually isn't any one path right now. Uh, but but I I think the, the path is, you know, millions of people who feel that this is not our country, this is not how we're supposed to behave. Uh, sort of lighting up with their own essential energy and doing whatever they can, whether it's persuading relatives or just saying, I'm not doing that, I'm going to help sick people or telling savage jokes that are so dark people cringe. Or, you know, I think if everybody behaves in their own flavor, then at the end of it, we can say that we, you know, we did our best.
0: But a flavor that's authentic to them.
1: Yes, exactly. Because that's the most powerful, as we know from art, you know, if you, you find a thing that you can do, it might not be the thing that you want it to do, but, you know, Slanty O'Connor says, uh, "A person can choose what he writes, but he can't choose what he makes live. So, you know, that's part of the artistic journey, I think, if you go, oh, i want to be so-and-so, and then the world goes, nope. And you go, oh, shit, okay, I'll, I'll be this person that's more like me. That's an I am. You jump for any artist. and So I think we all have to sort of know what we do uh, most powerfully. Because, you know, certainly like mathematically, if everybody is firing at a 9.5 in their mode, that adds up to a big number in opposition. Right. Uh, so I think that's, yeah, yeah.
0: Well, George, you're a great guy. Your book, Lincoln and the Bardo, is genius. I absolutely loved it. I encourage everyone out there listening to buy it. Maybe I can check in with you in a year or two to see how you feel uh, feeling
1: down the road about all yes. this. I'll be in the next cell at the drug. <laughs> All right, I'll we'll, be in the, we'll be in the comedy unit
0: <laughs> not a bad place to be listen I'll let you get back to no. wandering the Alabama uh, hotel lobby uh, good luck I with the tour it. and I really really appreciate your time thank you so Mike, much thank you. thank you for what you do buddy. okay that's it for this 424th episode can you believe it 424 episodes of doing it with Mike Sachs here is a highlight from the upcoming podcast. Fuck did you kill it for? It was so innocent. It wasn't doing anything. It wasn't hurting anybody. Are you fucking insane? (laughs) I appreciate you joining us. I really do. I look forward to seeing you all next week, especially you, The one who's not listening. I'd like to thank a few people, namely the great George Saunders, for talking with me by phone from a hotel lobby in Alabama. George's new book, his first novel, is called Lincoln in the Bardo, and it is terrific. It's really perfect for these very strange Trumpian times. Buy it. Thank you to Miles Kahn. Check out Full Frontal with Samantha Bee if you haven't already. Rob Schulte for producing, editing, wrangling, everything. You can reach Rob at Rob Check it out. Sam Peach, thank you for your marketing and artistic skills. There are wonderful. You can see Sam's incredible work on Instagram and Twitter at odeathcreative, Creative. And on Facebook and Tumblr under O Death Creative. That's just the letter O. You can reach me. I love emails at micsacks.com or at doing it with So until next time, I think you know what to do. Why are you shaking your head? every week we go through this do you not know what to do okay i'll remind you keep your feet on the ground and keep doing it
1: look look she's 14, 14 years y'all. old for y'all tell me don't she's know. 14 years old
0: from iraq i ran east Pakistan and i'm a pimp and i don't buy no land y'all stand me <laughs>